Welcome to Cornerstone Church of Parker and our Sunday service webcast, which is connecting you to God's Word anywhere over the internet. We're glad you're joining our webcast today and pray that God will minister to you as we share His good news in Christ Jesus. And now, with a message from God's Word, here's our speaker for today. Um, And so I'm going to be in Luke chapter 1 today. So if you want to turn there, we'll get there in just a moment. Um, So we are moving, uh, just give you a big picture, especially since we have so many guests here today. A big picture, I, I like to move through the, the, the Bible from beginning to end, basically on a three-year cycle, okay? I, I love doing it because it gives me, uh, and anyone who preaches with me, an opportunity to hit topics as they come up. Um, I found um, growing up, I, I, I had wonderful pastors growing up, but I found so often that, that they preached whatever was on their heart that week or whatever situation they were facing, and so it tended to be fairly scattered, and I feel like this a more systematic approach gives people a better balance. It makes sure we get to the parts of the Bible that we typically don't, don't read, you know, like the minor prophets especially um, in some of the epistles. And so uh, this year, where we're at in the cycles, we're, man, we're just about halfway through, maybe even a little bit more than halfway through. Um, we are in the book of Luke. Now, I took the book of John first, Okay, we just finished that series, and now we're into the book of Luke, and I, I did that switcheroo because I wanted to take Luke and Acts as one continuous narrative. They were both written by the same guy, Dr. Luke, and, and he wrote it as a historical narrative. It, it almost feels like one huge book that comprises about one-third of the New Testament, and so I felt like you would get some benefit from that, and so we're in starting the book of Luke in a series that I titled Real Man only Savior. Go back a slide, guys, so we can see that. Real man, only Savior. And when I, when I come up with these series titles, I do so with the intent of making them uh, memorable, especially, and relevant to why the author wrote the book in the first place. Luke wrote his gospel to show that Jesus was a real man and to prove that he was the only one qualified to be our Savior. And so real man, only Savior, kind of summarizes it. And so if you don't remember the details of the sermons, but you remember that title, you're going to have the gist of, of the gospel according to Luke. So um, we're in, there's a five, uh, five sermons, and this one is a real man. Okay, Jesus uh, was a real man who had a real birth, lived a real life, died a real death, and experienced a real resurrection. And today my goal is to Uh, show you that uh, in various places throughout uh, the book of Luke. And I want to do that by pointing out some secondary details that Luke, it, it just, he put so much thought and attention into. I think what his intent was is if, if people could corroborate the secondary details, the real people the, the, that lived in real places, did real things, and, and witnessed Jesus and observed him, if they could be verified as true, then the primary events concerning Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection could also be verified. It would kind of be like this. If none of you had met me, and yet um, you could go to where I teach, or you could talk to my neighbor Jim, or uh, uh, in just different people that have known me, check with some of my Facebook friends and say, did Mike Jones really exist? And, and what was he like? You could go and talk to them and, and, 
in these secondary places and find, oh, yes, he, he really did work here and he really was the, a teacher and he, this things. And so this is exactly what Luke was trying to do. And so we'll, we'll get to some of those in a minute. But as far as an application is concerned, like how do you apply some of these, these factual things I'm going to share to you, share with you today? And I think it's, it's related this way. You know, all of us tend towards one side or the other uh, of this continuum between facts and feelings, okay? Um, we have facts on one side and feelings on the other. And, you know, there are a whole lot of things that we know for a fact that we should do, but we actually don't do them as often as we sh should because we don't really feel like doing them, right? And so I thought, okay, I, I, I did a quick little internet search and I found on ranker.com, you know, people can post and move things up accordingly. And, and all these people had voted. And this is the top 10 list of things that people know they should do, but they don't until they really feel like it. Look at this list. Start exercising. Eat better. Save money. Dental checkups. Clean your room. Backup files. Dust. Pay off credit cards. Preventative car maintenance. Donate old clothes. Uh, and so these people were saying, okay, yeah, I know these are good things to do, but I don't really feel like doing them, so I will put them off. You know, when I look at this list, two things stand out for me personally. I don't know about you, but two things. And they both start with D. The first is dentists, okay? Dental checkups. Now, when I lived in, in Michigan, I was a whole lot better at dental checkups than I am now. Look at that guy. He's like staring into my soul. He's like, I haven't seen you in a while. You know, I can feel him under that mask breathing at me, like, come and see me. Um, no, I have not been to the dentist in a while, and I'm, pr I'm pretty vigilant at home with my teeth, and, and so I, I just don't really see the need to do so. Um, you know, the other thing is dusting. I, now, my family will testify that I really like chores, actually. I have a chore chart, in fact, that organizes everybody's work, to, you know, just to make sure that everything gets done accordingly. And I, not, my, not my wife's work, by the way. That's, that's a death wish. She don't put, she, when I was creating this chore chart, she's like, do not put me on that chore chart. I was like, no, it's, the real intent of it was to take the housework off of, off of her and make sure the kids and I were all pitching in. That's the real intent for it. Um, but I, I got sick and tired of trying to remember when the last time we did this and that was. When did we vacuum the stuff? I don't know. So I just put it on a chart, and it's on the fridge, and everybody just does their thing. Now, I can clean toilets. I can vacuum cars. I can do dishes. I can do mop the floor. I can do all sorts of chores. But dusting is like punching myself in the face. I hate dusting. Does anybody else hate dusting? I mean, I don't dust until I'm afraid someone might get a disease. Okay, and, and you can come to my car, to my house, and you'll find it's very clean, you know, and, and I just, I hate dusting, okay? I don't do it until I actually feel like doing it, and, you know, so what about you? Is anybody else, like, dental checkups, dusting, you know that? Uh, what is your thing on that list that you go, oh, yeah, I know, I should do that, but I, I really don't. I don't do it until something is, is falling apart, right? Until I have a hole in my tooth or something like that, okay? Now, we, we laugh at that, but you know what? A lot of 
professing Christians approach faith in the same way that they do dental checkups and dusting. They don't really put a lot uh, into it until something is falling apart, until there's a, 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 almost a, a, a catastrophe in their life. Their marriage is falling apart, or their kids are addicted to drugs, or they're just running away, and, and, and they're, they're going to lose their job, or somebody's suing them, or something, and then all of a sudden, oh my goodness, I better, I better get close to the Lord, right? They, they, they only put in, their, they only express their faith when they feel like it, okay? And so that's an issue because it's only when we're consistently expressing our faith, right, that we really benefit from it. It's like the stock market, all right? It's like the dollar cost averaging. You put it in when it's high, you put it in when it's low, and you just watch it grow. Copyright that. That's a good little phrase. I like that. Okay. I just made that up. That was good. No, um, but it is. It's like that. You, you invest in your faith. You express it whether you feel like it or not. And then you start to reap the benefits of it in your most important relationships. And so what do you do when you don't feel your faith? I mean, a lot of us feel our faith. I, was, I dropped my son off yesterday at a friend's house, and I'm driving home listening to worship music. And, you know, I'm praying and seeking God, and, you know, tears started to come to my eyes, and I'm coming up to a stoplight, and I'm kind of, like, hiding it so people don't see me, you know. But I'm like, you know what I'm talking about. You've done that before, right? And, you know, you're, I, I felt my faith. But, you know, what about on those days when you and I don't feel our faith? and things are terrible, and we feel like God is kind of far away, what do we fall back on then, right? Because there are times when no amount of worship music or coming here to church, it just doesn't seem to, to help in the feeling aspect of things. And so that's where Luke's gospel comes in handy, because he, as a scientist, as a doctor, as a detail-minded Greek, he wrote this book four times like that. He wrote it as a very accurate, very factual account so that when we don't feel our faith, we can come to the facts and say, no, Jesus was a real man. He really, lived, he really was born in Bethlehem. He lived a real life, died a real death, and he experienced a real resurrection. So whether I feel it right now or not, it is still true, okay? It is still true. It, you know, it's kind of like gravity. We don't really think about gravity all that much. I tell you what, you step off a roof, you'll feel gravity, right? You'll experience it. You'll be reminded of its reality. And so that's where, where Luke is kind of coming from. What can we fall back on? And so Luke presents information in a very accurate, very logical way so that people, when they don't feel their faith, they can fall back on these, uh, this historical evidence that shows that Jesus was a real man. I want to show you some of that today. So we're going to move from Luke 1.1 all the way to the very end of Luke. Now, don't worry. It's not going to take that long. I see you cringing. You're going to like, ooh, that sounds like long. I should have brought a water bottle or something. No, it's not going to take that long, believe me, okay? All right. And so let's start in Luke 1.1. Go there, please. Luke 1.1. 1, 1. We're going to see the purpose plainly stated here. Luke 1.1. 1, 1. Here we go. All right. So Luke says, Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, 
I also have decided to write a careful account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. And so you see this eyewitness reports, careful investigation, so you can be certain of the truth. Certain of the truth. And so we see uh, his uh, uh, stated purpose here. And then as you move through his book, you are going to encounter over and over very specific dates, very specific people, very specific places mentioned because he's putting in all these secondary details so that the Greeks that he and Paul were encountering on their missionary journeys could verify that, oh, that is true. That is a real place. Oh, I've heard of Pilate. I've heard of Herod Antipodes. I know that they're real. And so, wow, that, that lends some credence to these other things that Luke is saying about Jesus. Now, as far as historical accuracy is concerned, Luke's book is incredibly accurate. In fact, some people have said that Luke is quite possibly the greatest historian in history. Okay, And so I want to just take a moment to give you just a little bit of the kind of history he included. If you look in chapter 2, verse 1, look in chapter 2, verse 1, you're going to see that Luke, he sets the events he records in dates using Roman emperor reigns. There wasn't a, a, a common calendar system at the time, and so they dated things by who was in charge, namely the emperor. And so he says, at that time, the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman empire. We see this again in Luke chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. It says, it was now the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, the Roman emperor. And so he's setting dates based on Roman emperors. In fact, Luke fixes the birth of Jesus during the reign of Emperor Augustus when Herod the Great was king in Judea and Quirinius was the governor of Syria. We see that in Luke chapter 1 verse 5 as well as Luke 2, 1 and 2. And as far as Jesus' birth is concerned, we can read about it in Luke 2, right? And we see uh, in verses 4 through 7, if you want to glance at those real quick, that Joseph and Mary traveled from Nazareth in Galilee, you have a town in a region, to Bethlehem in Judea, another town in a region. And if you look through, you're going to start to see, especially verse 7, and just glance at that real quick. Mary gave birth to her first child, a son. She wrapped him in snuggly strips of cloth, laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. And so Luke, over and over, he adds in these really fine details. He even uses the word snuggly, Right? I don't know that that was in the Bible, but Jesus was snuggly that first morning, right? How many of you have one of those, uh, maybe you don't want to raise your hand on this one, but you know, isn't it called a snuggly? The blanket things that you wear? I do not have one of those and will never have one of those because it violates every man law there is, okay? I will not wear a snuggly or whatever that thing is called. Okay? And if you do, especially men, we are going to pray after church about this. Amen. Oh, geez. I better not show up at your house and you're sitting on the couch in a snuggly. Jeez. That's not in the Bible, but it should be. I'm just saying. All right. Look at Jesus' life. Okay? We looked at his birth. And keep in mind, guys, I am not 
saying everything that is, could be said about these things. I mean, this is just a quick overview. That's what books are for, okay? Uh, and I'll tell you about a really great one here towards the end of uh, this sermon. So as far as Jesus' life is concerned, if you look in Luke 2, 39 and 40, it says, when Jesus' parents had fulfilled all the requirements of the law of the Lord, they returned home to Nazareth in Galilee. There the child grew up healthy and strong. He was filled with wisdom and God's favor was on him. And so we see, I counted at least three times that Luke mentioned specifically Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Um, we see that again in verses 51 and 52 and then also in chapter 4, verse 16. He specifically mentions Nazareth. Uh, being Jesus' boyhood, boyhood home. Now, Nazareth is not any place special. In fact, some ancient maps didn't even have it on there. It's kind of this no-place town, very small. I've actually been to Nazareth. Has anybody else been to Nazareth? Yeah, it, it's, it's a quiet little town. I think it's much bigger than what it was in Jesus' day. But um, you go to places like that, and you're like, oh, wow, he walked around here. You know, he walk probably right past here. You know, this is, it's quite, quite an experience, but it really isn't anything to write home about, okay? Um, we see in verse 40 and 41, it says, every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem. When Jesus was 12 years old, they attended the festival as usual. So there is a 12-year gap between verse 40 and 41. Just, just like that, I mean, Luke summarizes it that whole 12 years by just saying he grew up healthy and strong. He was filled with wisdom and God's favor was on him. He grew up as a boy in Nazareth. And then after this incident where his parents lost him in Jerusalem for three days, does anybody ever wonder, how, what did he eat? It's not like he went to Chick-fil-A or anything like that. Where did he go to get food? I, I don't know many 12-year-olds that fast three days. I, I, mine doesn't. I have a 12-year-old. He don't fast 12 minutes. <laughs> ridiculous. You know, how many of you know what I'm talking about? You get them, yeah, it's like, where are you putting the food? Down, he's like got stomachs in his legs or something like that. I don't know. It's a ton. So I don't know what Jesus did for three days, but, but uh, they found him in, uh, in the temple talking with the teachers, and his parents were, were pretty freaked out about it. But you see uh, that he returned home to Nazareth. This is verse 51. And he was obedient to them, and his mother stored all these things in her heart. Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all the people. And when you get to chapter 3, verse 1, there's like nearly an 18-year gap again. And so all Luke says about Jesus is growing up. In fact, all the gospel accounts say about Jesus's early life is basically mentioned right here, okay? I think that Matthew mentions that there was a time that they fled to Egypt to get away from Herod, and so he spent a little bit of time in Egypt as well, but for the most part, he just grew up in Nazareth, right? Now, chapter 3, we're still in talking about Jesus's life. It begins with another very specific date and a very specific list of rulers. Look at the detail in this list. Read chapter 3, verse 1. It was now the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, the Roman emperor. Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea. Herod Antipasus was ruler over Galilee. His brother Philip was ruler over Ituria and Trachonitis. Licinius was ruler over Albaline. Annas and Caiaphas, uh, Caiaphas were the high priests. At this time, a message from God came to John, son of Zechariah, who was living in the wilderness. I mean, talk about secondary details. The Greeks that Paul and Luke were, were 
interacting with and preaching the gospel to, they knew those people. And they could go and verify that, yes, Pontius Pilate was a real person. Obviously, the Roman Empire, emperor was a real person. And so on and on. And, and they go, oh, wow, if Jesus, he didn't grow up in a bubble. He grew up in a context, a historical context with real people in real places doing real things. And Jesus was a part of this narrative. Okay? And so... Um, as we look through uh, and we read about John and we come to uh, verse, make sure I get this, uh, 22, verse 22, okay? Uh, John, God told John the Baptist that whoever you baptize and see the Holy Spirit like descend upon, that that person is the Messiah. And that occurred when Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River. And so John knew, oh, Wow, this is the Messiah. And he heard God the Father's voice from heaven. Okay? And so John's story is included partly for that reason. But if you look in verse 23, everybody look at that real quick. Luke says Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his public ministry. Now that's a really important detail because in that day, priests generally began their ministry in the temple when they were 30 years old. And so as a, as a detail, that's very important, okay? Jesus was both a prophet, priest, and a king, right? And so he began his ministry at that time. The other detail, the other reason I think that he waited until he was about 30 years old is that as the eldest son, I think he had a responsibility to take care of his mom and his siblings. We know Jesus had brothers and sisters, right? And at some point between age 12 and age 30, Joseph died. So as the eldest son, he would have continued on the business and made sure everybody was provided for. And so I just can't see Jesus getting to a point and saying, well, you know, I'm 25. You know, I'm out of here. I got a ministry to start. Mom, brothers, sis, hey, you guys got to fend for yourself. I don't really see the love of God in that, that sort of attitude, right? And so it would be very hypocritical for him to have led left his mom and brothers and sisters to fend for themselves. And so we, I think he stayed until they could take care of themselves. And then he moved on, okay? And so we see several people, just in the first three chapters, real people, uh, rulers of empires and regions, mentioned during the birth, the boyhood, and the ministry years of Jesus. And that brings us to more of the primary events. Turn to Luke chapter 23. Okay, turn to Luke chapter 23. I've included a list of some of the people that Luke, uh, prominent people that Luke includes in both his gospel account and Acts. Two of them, Pilate and Herod Antipodes, uh, figured prominently into Jesus' death. And both are mentioned in chapter 23. In fact, um, verse 12 says that Pilate and Herod were enemies, but on this day, they became friends. Just in the exchange of sending Jesus back and forth between themselves, somehow they became buddies, okay? And so uh, we find in these verses that both Pilate and Herod, being wicked men, unbelievers, ungodly believers, we find them saying, listen, we find no fault in him, and they wanted to release him. I find it extremely interesting that they didn't wrongfully convict him just to get the whole mess done, right? A lot of people would have been lazy in it and just said, okay, whatever, you know, just to appease people. And they, they resisted that 
up to a point, and finally they gave into the crowd's cries in verses 20 through 24 to have uh, Jesus crucified. And so as you read through this chapter, you're going to see that Luke included some amazing detail, details about Christ's death, that whole experience that are not recorded in any of the other Gospels. For instance, verse 32, take a look at that. Verses 32 through 43 talks about two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. And we see the one who kind of chides Jesus and the other who is repentant. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me, right? These just very specific words. We see uh, that darkness covered the whole land from uh, verse 44. By this time it was noon and darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. Now the word darkness there, it doesn't mean there was a solar eclipse, which actually is physically impossible during Passover because it's a full moon, okay? But he still says somehow or another there was darkness, probably just intense cloud cover, that the physical meaning isn't as important as the theological meaning. Jesus was the son of God and about to die. And so darkness covered the whole land. Luke tells all about it. He talks about the words of the centurion in verse 47. Look at those. It's just a statement. But if you didn't, if Luke didn't go and investigate carefully every detail and do these eyewitness reports and interviews, he wouldn't have known this. And I have to wonder if he actually talked to this guy. He says, when the Roman officer overseeing the execution saw what had happened, he worshiped God and said, surely this man was innocent, right? And so again, we see Luke putting in these secondary details. Why? Because if you can prove and you can go and talk to the centurion, even without ever having met Jesus, you will know that, wow, Jesus was a real man and he died a real death. Continuing on into verse 50, you can see now there was a good and righteous man named Joseph. He was a member of the Jewish high council, which was the Sanhedrin. And Joseph took extraordinary steps to make sure that Jesus was removed from the cross and buried before the Sabbath began. Why before the Sabbath? Because Jews didn't work on the Sabbath, and this was definitely work, okay? Wrapping in Jesus and taking care of his body and putting him in the tomb, that was definitely considered work. And he didn't want Jesus hanging on that cross like the common criminals did. Could you imagine a body hanging on the cross for two days? That, his body would have been wrecked, picked apart by birds and just it'd been gross. And so out of respect, Joseph took very, very uh, specific steps to get Jesus off the cross and into that tomb uh, before the end of that day. Um, and so he is turning these first-hand reports into a smooth narrative for the benefit of his readers. Okay, let's go to his resurrection. Turn to Luke 24, verse 1. You see that Luke says, very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb. These are probably the same women who prepared spices and ointments to anoint his body. They went back on on Sunday morning, very early, and they found the stone rolled away. And he continues walking through this. He tells about Peter going and visiting the tomb. And then he goes, what I find extremely interesting is that Luke spends a good portion, probably half of chapter 24, talking about Jesus' walk to Emmaus with two disciples, one of whom Luke says was Cleopas. Again, why even include his name? Why? Because people could go find Cleopas and say, did you really walk with Jesus? 
for several miles to Emmaus? And he said, yes, I did. You know, yes, I did. Jesus was a real man, and he really did rise from the grave. In fact, look what Cleopas says in verse 34. Look at that with me. He says, the Lord has really risen. He really has. One translation says, he certainly has risen, which I find that word certain to be really a powerful word because it connects back to what we read in chapter 1, verse 4, so that you can be what? Certain of the things that you have been taught. And this, these disciples say, no, this is a certainty. This is a fact. You can count on it. Take it to the bank. Jesus really did rise from the grave. And then we end his gospel in verse 50. It says, Then Jesus led them to Bethany, which was just a mile or two outside of uh, Jerusalem, lifting his hands to heaven. He blessed them. This is verse 51. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up to heaven. So they worshiped him and then returned to Jerusalem, filled with great joy, and they spent all of their time in the temple praising God. Right? And, as we know from Acts, waiting for God to send the Holy Spirit just as Jesus said he would. And so, Jesus uh, was a real man. He had a real birth, real life in Nazareth. He died a real death and was really, most certainly, raised from the grave. And Luke included all of this historical information in mentioning hundreds of people, places in ancient history. And, you know, at first, by including so much detail in his account, he opened himself up to attack from skeptics. For a long time, people were like, oh, you, he couldn't have said that. He couldn't. Have, that couldn't be true. There, there couldn't be any way that, that Luke is so, uh, all these details are so true. But archaeology has proven exactly that. In fact, one prominent archaeologist carefully examined Luke's references to 32 countries, 54 cities, and nine islands without finding a single mistake. Now, as part of his book, The Case for Christ, uh, which is a fantastic book, I, um, I would recommend you reading that. Just, I read mine over the course of like two months, just a chapter a week. Okay, I recommend reading that. Uh, it was authored by Lee Strobel. And in this book, he interviewed Dr. John McRae, who is a world-renowned expert in archaeology in the New Testament. And Dr. McRae uh, was asked if the accuracy of Luke's account of history can be trusted. And he said, the general consensus of both liberal and conservative scholars is that Luke is very accurate. He's erudite. He's eloquent. His, his Greek approaches classical quality. He writes as an educated man, and archaeological discoveries are showing over and over again that Luke is accurate in what he has to say. In fact, archaeology has not produced anything that is unequivocally a contradiction to the Bible. So we see archaeology's repeated affirmation of the New Testament's accuracy, which is very important in corroborating its reliability. Well, this is in stark contrast with how archaeology has proved to be devastating for Mormonism. Now, although Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon church, claimed that his Book of Mormon is the most correct of any book upon the earth, archaeology has repeatedly failed to substantiate its claims about the events that supposedly occurred long ago in the Americas. Uh, Lee Strobel writing this, he says, I, I wrote to the Smithsonian Museum to inquire about whether or not there was any evidence supporting the claims of Mormonism, only to be told in unequivocal terms that its archaeologists see no direct connection between the archaeology of the New World and the subject matter of the book. 
Authors John Inkerberg and John Weldon concluded in a book on the topic, in other words, no book of Mormon cities have ever been located, no book of Mormon person, place, nation, or name has ever been found, no book of Mormon artifacts, no book of Mormon scriptures, no book of Mormon inscriptions, nothing which demonstrates the book of Mormon is anything other than a myth or invention has ever been found. And this is totally different for the New Testament. And we see this in Luke's gospel as a a main source of evidence. So remember, Luke wrote his gospel to give our faith something beyond feelings. He wanted to see our faith in in the people that he ministered to. He wanted to see their faith established on facts because he knew that we're not always going to feel our faith. We're not always going to feel like, oh, yeah, wow, God's so close to me. You know, We're not always going to feel that. And he wanted us to be able to fall back on these facts and say, no, whether I feel like it or not, Jesus was a real man. And so he put tremendous effort into substantiating these secondary details. Again, I think this is the third time I've asked you, Why? Because if you can go and prove that these secondary details, these people, places, and and, and things that they did were true, then Jesus was part of that context. And you can say, well, well, I've guessed the events of primary importance, like his birth, life, death, and resurrection, are are also true because all these people testify to the fact that he existed. In fact, one article I found said that first century people in general, there wasn't any argument among them that Jesus was a real man. They all knew it. It's only been over time throughout centuries and now 20 centuries later that people wonder, was he in fact a real man? And so what about you? There's two, two type of people listening, whether here today live or on a podcast later on. There's two types of people. There's uh, non-believers and there's believers. And so if you're not a Christian, what do you think after now hearing these, these facts? Obviously, time didn't permit me to share all of the details uh, about the facts concerning Jesus' uh, existence, but that's what books are for. And I ordered a few copies of The Case for Christ for uh, basically anybody who wants one, non-believers or believers, but especially I ordered them, especially for seekers, for people who are like, you know what? I, I'm interested. I'm intrigued. I would like to know more. If that's you, please see me. I'll make sure that you get a copy of that book. I, I would imagine they would be here this week uh, at some point. So by next Sunday, I could get you, get you a copy. Okay? I, I, I know that it will, will help you. It will be the, the, the evidence that you need to take that step to believe in, in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Well, if you are a Christian, then well, what do you do when you don't feel your faith? Are you falling back on the facts? Because if you only express your faith in Christ when you feel like it, you're probably not going to be extremely consistent with it. It's going to become like dental checkups and dusting, right? And it's not going to lead to the benefits. You're not going to experience the benefits of of walking with Jesus um, if you're not consistently expressing that faith. And so Luke's gospel uh, encourage us and gives us the, the, I guess, the source material we need to have that uh, stabilization within our faith, okay? Um, and so today, as we go this week, I want to encourage you, just 
take time to read through his gospel. Uh, if you want a copy of my notes, I'll just give them to you, and you can investigate more of this for yourself or pick up a copy of The Case for Christ. All right? Would you stand and pray with me as we close? Thank you for your patience with me. Some of these like factual-type sermons are hard to preach, but necessary. I hope you benefited from it. Father, we just thank you so much for our time together today. I thank you for Luke. I thank you uh, for just how he wrote his gospel account, just the, the scientific approach. As a scientist myself, I, I appreciate that, that logic and that reasoning, God. And, and as someone who, who often feels my faith, I do appreciate the facts to be able to fall back on. And I, I pray that people who listen this morning, everyone here or listening online, that they would benefit from that, Lord, so that when they they don't feel their faith, when they don't feel close to you, they can fall back on Luke's account and say, no, no, Jesus was a real person. He died a real death and experienced a real resurrection for me so that we could walk with you. And so I just pray that blessing, let that be each one of our realities today. I also pray a blessing, just again, Lord, upon every person as they go. Lord, that prayer that we prayed at the end of worship, I know that you are sending and you have just are pouring blessings out on their lives even now. I thank you for that. Take care of these wonderful people this week. And go with each one of us. Give us a wonderful afternoon. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You are loved. Have a great week. We thank you for listening to this Sunday service webcast from Cornerstone Church of Parker in Parker, Colorado. We hope that his truth has enriched your life and inspires you to greater works in God's kingdom. We invite you to worship with us in our Sunday morning service or join in our other ministry events posted on cornerstonechurchofparker.org. Cornerstone Church, built on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ and connecting people to God, each other, and to our world.